good to see you guys all branch and we are going to be starting in a series called Singled In and what we are going to be doing is talking about a vision for those of you who are living in single life and maybe you're there unexpectedly, maybe you're there because it's been a long journey, or maybe you're there because you're just starting in it, but we are as a church going to focus in because we want to we want to put the conversation in the right zone. I think this is an idea that we want to bring up because there's been so much um, the church hasn't really done for singles as we'll see as I, as I think we should and we're going to talk about that. If you're our guest, I want to welcome you. My name is Greg Harris. We're glad that you are here today and uh, we're going to be talking about this because I believe Christ and the church should have a heart for single people. Amen church? Okay, a few of you think so. All right, so um, you can't say amen now. You'd be guilted into it. So we, we can't do that. But what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to look at this. See, for me, I think uh, this conversation begins early, actually before I was even born. My, my parents had made a decision long, long before I was born that affected my life. And it was a decision to care for a man they had met while my dad was working for the Parks and Rec of Corona. Amen. I love Parks and Rec. Any Parks and Rec fans out there? Um, people don't, everybody's into ASO anymore, our poor Parks and Rec team, they're just so busy, but um, my dad worked for them, used to climb around in, inside the gymnasiums and, and work in the place down there at the Corona City Hall, and he met this man named Paul, and Paul became a, a family friend, in fact, I knew him as Uncle Paul, he was the, I knew him as the man who brought the best gifts at Christmas. He was the guy who introduced us to the video game world. He brought all the, all the uh, awesome computer stuff into our life. He was always investing in us as, as, a, as a family, even though he lived in our house for a little while, and then he would come for Christmases. Eventually, my Uncle Paul uh, would have us down at, uh, have us go to these cool locations that he was working in. He always worked security, and so he was working out at some uh, airport out in the middle of like out in the middle of the, um, I forget what it is, it's like off Archibald, way out there in the middle of the uh, fields and the, and the cow pastures, and then he moved over to the Spruce Goose and the Queen Mary, and we got to go around on the Queen Mary and all the hidden locations there and see the ghosts and stuff, it was really cool, uh, no, no we didn't see any ghosts, but it was one of those guys who poured into our lives, and here's my thing, I always wonder what would my life have been like if my Uncle Paul had not been a part of it, and if this single man had never poured into our lives? He died an untimely early death as a single man. He'd never married, even though we knew he would, he would have loved to have. And from there, it's just into my heart, single people's lives just were something that's been powerful and valuable. We've had single people rent our home. We've had rent a room out of our home. I have best friends who are singles, and it's just something that's been in my life. And it makes me wonder then, what would the church be like if it continues in its trajectory? Because it will be a place with fewer and fewer single people influencing us. Because right now in the church, single people are not participating in the church at the same level as they were in the past. In fact, in the, in the world around us, this is an issue. 45.2% of all Americans are single. Let me say that again. Almost half of all Americans are single in the last census. That is over 110.6 million people, and 70 plus of those million, 70 million plus, have never been married. That's a lot of people, isn't it? I mean, you think that, ah, oh, single people, there's a few. And we're talking 18-year-olds all the way up. And this is not all the divorce. This isn't just that group. This is a whole swath of Americans. And then you talk to them. As I've talked to my friends, and you start having conversations with them, you say, how has the church done for you as singles? You know what they love to say? Horribly. They don't think we've done a good job at all. You know why? They call us the marriage cult. 
They really were overly focused on marriage. We constantly talk about marriage. When all of our illustrations are through marriage, we talk about our children, we talk about our spouses, then we turn around, we talk about our marriage retreats and our marriage conferences and our married, our married groups, our premarital counseling, all of our marriage counseling. You name it, we're talking about marriage at some level. And this has primarily happened because, honestly, back in the 60s, we were dealing with the divorce wars. Then it became the divorce rate. Then it became the sexual wars. And then it became the definition of marriage itself. And so the church has gotten fixated more and more and more on marriage. Now, how many of us are married? Throw your hand up here real fast. So obviously I'm talking to the majority of the room here that, hey, I'm not gonna, we're not going to stop a focus. But my goal is here to say, for all of you who are single, not to devalue you, but to raise up all of us at the same level. We're not going to knock marriage and knock singles. We're going to raise singles and married to the same level, the level God desires for them to be at. We want to look at it from God's perspective. Amen? Now, come on. We're going to get closer as we get going, as you'll hear in a second. But um, here, here's how bad it is, actually. In the church, with all that stuff, you think it can't really be that bad, Greg. There's singles ministries out there, right? No, they're closing. Constantly in major churches, they are constantly closing their singles ministries, primarily because of lack of participation, but also because of fears. Included in this is the lack of focus that churches given to single life compared to the entire industry out there on the dating scenes and stuff like that. Go on Amazon, you type Christian and married, you get 20,000 options for books and other, and other information. If you write type Christian and singleness, you know what you wind up with? 271. Does that give you a sense of the misbalance that's going on in the church? And so I want to talk about that misbalance. We want to undo that. We need to acknowledge some things. Because to be quite honest, many single people feel devalued by the church. They actually feel insulted and harmed by the church in some cases. And hopefully not here at Olive Ranch. Hopefully here we can be, bring us into a new perspective. But it needs to begin with the acknowledgement that this culture can devalue singles. And I want to kind of paint how this is happening. How the culture begins to devalue value them. And it happens with something called the social clock. Now, the social clock is something that can generate a lack of value by missing a particular checkpoint. This is kind of fun because we've been doing it in the last few services, and it's pretty true. There's a social clock, and roughly it begins when you're born, and you should walk at a certain age, and you should read at a certain age. But then when you hit high school, what's the first thing you need to do when you're done, when you're in high school? You need to, what? Say it, it's easy graduate, right? We want kids to graduate. We don't want them to drop out. Are we okay? We need to pray this morning. <laughs> We're like all asleep. It's been an hour extra, guys. And it's like we stayed up late. Um, what do you do after you graduate? What are you supposed to do? You need to go to college, right? Or the military, depending on your family and your society. But you need to go to college. Then in college, you need to what? You need to graduate. Then you need to, what's the next thing? No, no, move back into your parents' house. That's really what you need to do, right? No, that's the, no, you need to find a career. Actually, that is the answer our culture is giving. You need to have a career. Once you have a career, then you get married. And once you're married, you need to have children. And once you have children, they need to go to school. and You need to get a house. They need to graduate. And we have this thing called a social clock, as expected. And here's what happened. If you miss a gate, the culture, or at least your grandmother, lets you know. Isn't that true? All of you got married. How fast did it come to, hey, hey, are you having kids yet? You going to have kids yet? You going to have kids yet? Are you having kids yet? Oh, you going to have kids yet? And then you start having kids and you have four kids and people go, 
you know how that works, don't you? And you're like, come on, you've been pushing me, this works. So our problem is that we have this social clock, and there's a social clock for singles that honestly, they, they, they can miss a gate, and it feels like pain, and it begins to build as panic. Let me explain. There's really kind of three kinds of sing- groups of singles I'm going to lay out for you to help us out. There, there's a pre-group, and we call those the learners, all those from zero up to about 18. They're going to learn what life's about, and they're kind of in that junior high, high school phase. But really what we have here is, is this first group, I like to call them starters. Starters are, are young adults who are starting their careers. They're starting their educations. They're starting their lives. And that roughly goes from about 18 to somewhere around 30. In fact, the average age for the average American right now, male, is to get married at 29. The average American female is to get married at 27. That's roughly the averages. As you get moving along that journey, you land in be somewhere between those late 20s, and all the way to in you know upwards of 60, 70, 80, all the way there, and you will define yourself as a single adult. And a single adult is somebody who, as your days click by, the social pressure and the social clock grows in such a position that it begins to cause devaluation. Because as you get older, our culture worships youthfulness. And as you get older, you feel less valuable to a culture, especially since you see you, you're not married and the world's starting to look at you in different ways. We'll look in a second. And it begins to be pressured. And there's lots of trauma in this, young, in this, in this single adult category for several reasons. If you made it into the single adult category, some of you are there because you've been rejected over and over and over again. Relationship after relationship after relationship hasn't worked out, regardless of how many times you've been hooked up and how many websites you visited, how many times everybody tells you what you need to do to get married, right? As that continues on, though, some of you have wound up single because of divorce that you weren't looking for or an untimely death of your spouse, and you've landed now as a single adult, and you're looking at the, at the landscape of life going like, what is going on? It's hard to find other people in my, in my stage of life. It's hard to connect with them. There's all of these baggage. There's all this stuff. And then you move to a whole third group of singles, which is our widowers and our widows. At this level, all of us know that if you're married at some point, someday, one of you is going to remain, unless there's something tragic that happens, you both go at the same time. But one of you is going to remain, and that may last a while or it may be short. But you're sitting there staring at a whole different set of pressures. Family may have been moving on, doing their social clock thing, making sure they're jumping through all the right hoops, while your family spread out across the United States, or even in some cases the world at this point. And now there's questions as you've gotten older and you're growing and you're, you're looking at your, your social security and your income, and you're hearing comments like, hey, you know, there's this 55 plus place up there. You guys should go do that. Or some of you are hearing, you know what, it's, we just can't help you here, mom, anymore. Maybe you should go into a home. And you're beginning to feel abandoned or pushed out or your society is beginning to put you in an angle that you don't particularly enjoy. And these are the pressures in the sense of a single world. Not to mention that our culture adds different pressures when it comes to sex. When you're single, our culture is trying to tell you, hey, there's these gates. Sure, graduate. Yeah, you don't really need to get married. But you know what is a, you know what a joke is? Here's the joke. A 40-year-old virgin. That's not possible. Except in Christianity, what do we say? Look, sex belongs in marriage. And so, yeah, it's very clearly possible. And many Christians in the church who are trying to stay celibate and remain faithful to Christ are feeling devalued not only by the interior church culture, by the exterior culture as well. 
And so there's a lot that if you're a single, you carry in some cases. Not all of you. Some of you are happily single and you're good and you're great and you're marching forward. I still have something to say for all of us, but these are the different phases. And they can, and it builds. If you're in the starter, you don't feel the pressure as much as if you're identifying yourself as a single adult. And these are some of our friends. And the problem is that oftentimes many of us in the culture as Christians, especially married people, we respond wrong. It's a lot like we got to the amusement park and we rode a roller coaster. Anybody roller coaster fans out here? I love roller coasters. I will ride anything that spins, flips, turns me upside down. For some reason, I've got a good inner ear that allows me still to do that at my age. But I've got a lot of friends who stopped, right? like my, my wife can't do it and we just went to knots and we had all our staff and I'm like you got to get on this ride this thing's awesome and I'm laughing as they're freaking out because I'm that guy who gets off the roller coaster and I go you got to try this thing and you're telling me I can't do that man I get sick and throw up oh it's not that bad it's really smooth you ever heard somebody tell you that one right you know oh I can't handle that I just spin well you spin the opposite direction it'll even you out you'll be fine no, it doesn't work you know, I have all these excuses, right? I'm so excited about this roller coaster. You got to try it. Married people, we get so excited about being married. We get so excited about having kids. We turn around and we're like, you got to try this thing. And we produce this social clock. And what happens is it's not like single people aren't trying to try. And we uh, begin to view singles not as people. And many of you as singles feel like I'm not viewed as a person, but more like a problem to be solved. And many singles have indicated, and in one of the books, Gina Delfonso does a great job laying this out. She's like, look, many people feel as singles that they're the problem. The church has told them that, you know, the problem is you're just too picky and you're too selfish and you just haven't grown up yet. You're immature. You sit in your basement with your mom playing your video games all day and you just don't want to, you don't want to get out there and figure out how to have a real relationship. And there's all this, you're a problem language that comes from the church. Now, you're not a problem. People have problems, married and unmarried, and yeah, we need to deal with problems. And sometimes we're thankful that we have friends and loved ones that will approach us and inform us that we've got some issues we need to deal with, amen? But you know what? When you're treated like a problem and you hear from pastors and you hear from culture you're a problem because you're single, it's devaluing. Or maybe you feel like a pariah. Ever, Ever had somebody use the word fifth wheel or third wheel? I just feel like I'm always involved and I'm never really in. I'm always standing on the outside of the circle, but I'm not really engaged. This kind of language really begins to feel uh, begins to, to feel like I'm just the one that's hanging on. Maybe you've even been told, all you ever talk about is your singleness. Would you just stop already? Stop whining and just go figure it out? And this is the problem. We can oftentimes begin to get so tired and frustrated about, oh, you, you know, we, we end up treating singles as pariahs and not as people, and that's devaluing. Or maybe we... Treat them like a, a fun project that, hey, I, can't, I got this aunt. An aunt? Really? Yeah, yeah, she's awesome. You, you should meet her someday. And you're going like, I'm 31. I want to meet your aunt. You know, it's like, <coughs> you know, we, 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 we start to try to hook everybody up. We try to figure out all the different ways. And we come up to many of you singles and we treat you like a project that we're going to solve. We're going we're gonna to fix it. We're going to be your matchmaker, matchmaker, make you a match. You know, that's what we're all dancing around at. And, and while many of you may be like, thanks, you know, it helps. It helps me find somebody if that works. I'm, I'm great for some relationships. Well, just point me in that direction. But a lot of times we begin to treat you simply as a project. And if we don't work, well, you turn into a problem and on and on it goes. And the goal in the church is not to treat you as a project. The goal in the church is not to call it and make you feel like a problem or a pariah. You ought to be treated as a person. 
You're a human being. You are, you are somebody that we need to lift up and bless as, and, and, and see as God sees you. And, and unfortunately, this culture has done this a little too much of devaluing. And, and singles, devalue, you devalue yourself as well. There's an overfixation that can occur on this social clock. And anytime we overly fixate something, we fall into a category classically understood as in, in the Hebrew Bible as idolatry. In fact, when they lay out the history of Israel, idolatry was always a problem. As they're talking about the kings of Israel, um, there's a summation statement here in, in chapter 17 as it's talking about their rejection of God's warnings. They say they despised God's statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And that's what I want to point out. This is true for all human beings. If we run after something that isn't God and we worship it and overly fixate on it, it shapes who we are. They worship something that was false and became false. If you're focused on sex, it will twist and change you into a selfish person who views everything through a sexual lens. If you're focused on marriage wrongly, it will twist you and change you into the kind of person who all you see is everything about married people and hear everything about married people. If, if you're focused only on yourself because you're single and you're going to be strong, it will twist you into a selfish person. We have to be careful about our focus, married or not. Single or, or not. This is important. Otherwise, what will occur is we will have an obsession that leads us to idolatry. And just as a warning, our goal needs to be in this series not to figure out how to fix singles and get you married or, or this kind. No, it needs to be on the right focus. How do we build the appropriate focus for our lives? Really, what I want to say is we need to begin by revaluing singles from God's perspective. I've said that several times. This is really the key, that we all together would revalue singles from God's perspective. What is that perspective? How does this work? Well, historically speaking, marriage has always been viewed as um, kind of like the ultimate thing that needs to be done. You need to, you need to get married, in fact, in Judaism, because if you didn't, singleness was considered a sin. In fact, they would point to this verse in Genesis chapter 1 as the verse of God's first commandment to all of humanity. Not the greatest command, but the first one he gives to humanity is this. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And he's saying, listen, here's your first command. Get married, have children. And in Judaism, if you don't, it's sinful. Even today, it's considered sinful for you not to get married. To be single. Romans in the Greco-Roman world actually had laws limiting your ability to be single. They were always forcing you to get married and even uh, almost like a forcible marriage setup. You, you, you were highly, highly, highly encouraged by the government to not be single. And so what we see here is an entire culture and history that has wound up elevating marriage to a status that it doesn't deserve. In fact, even today, Islam still claims that you're in sin if you're single. Judaism does that. And in Mormonism, you can't even reach the highest heavens unless you don't go through a spiritual form of marriage. Marriage has been exalted to salvation in the Mormon church, and yet historically in the Christian church, this isn't how it's been. Historically, Christianity saw the singles as honored people. I mean, stop and think about that. You think about John the Apostle. Think he's honored? Yeah, because and he was single. You know, who? Oh, we got Paul the Apostle honored and single. We have 
all the church fathers, whether it's Ignatius and, or Polycarp, these men were single men. We have Augustine, if you've ever heard of him. He was a single man. We have all of these, some of our reformers were single men. When you think of people who we would call fathers or mothers, Mother Teresa, a single woman, these people are venerated and lifted in our church culture as people who are honored. It begins because we view every human being as the image of God. Genesis 1.27, the verse before the infamous marriage commandment, as they would view that, is saying that each of you are in God's value. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Mankind is in God's image. You are based off of God. Whether you're single or whether you're married... It doesn't matter your status. God has valued you fully and completely by his own value. That means you're intrinsically worth something. It can't be taken from you and it can't be given to you. Your value is yours. And when you understand that God has valued you, that you ask the question, what does that look like? What kind of value is it? This is the kind of value he has for you. That his son, Jesus Christ, would willingly die on the cross to bear your failures to God and your failures to other human beings. To bear that sin on himself, suffer your hell for you so that you could be saved from it and have an eternal relationship with God so that he ceases to be God and becomes your father in heaven. That God loved you so much and valued you so much, he was willing to bear your sin on himself. Not because you're married or not married. Not because you're single. No, because you are made by him. This is your value, and that's where it comes from, and that should set our focus and change things, and that's why Christianity has raised up people, whether they're single or married, as valuable But even more so, obviously, the reason we honor singles in a great way in Christianity is because our founder, Jesus himself, was single. He was a single man. And in a Jewish society where marriage was considered the norm, there is likely a scene, while it's not in any of our eyewitness documents that are given to us, there was likely, and we can infer, a scene happening in his home where Joseph and Mary brought, you know, were talking to him one night and said, Jesus, you're our oldest, you know, we have this family we've been talking to because it was an arranged marriage set up in that culture. She's a great girl. She's a, she comes from a good family. Their lineage is of David. We think this is going to be awesome. You know, we, we believe that this is what God would want. And so they're talking about this. And Jesus has to stop his parents at some point. You can see this. He says, you know, I'm mom and dad. I'm thank you, but I'm about my father's business. And I believe that I am to keep that as my central focus. I'm not going to get married. Somewhere in this conversation, Jesus stopped his parents and said, no, my life is to be single. My life is to be wholly aimed at God. And this idea of the celibate single, which was not necessarily a large category in the Jewish thinking, was the central focus, that Jesus, the central vehicle Jesus would use to bring about his ministry and give the focus that he gave it. 
And when we see that, we see that Jesus highlights singleness in a way that was never highlighted before. And this is an interesting situation. I don't know if you guys uh, can remember, but he's talking to Sadducees. And the Sadducees were the people who ran the, who ran the temple of the, of the Jewish courts. And they were kind of the leaders. They, they ran the Sanhedrin, which was like their government. And they come out to discuss with Jesus, actually to debate with him. They only believed in the first five books, the Torah, as we would know it, um, the first five books of the law and the Hebrew Bible. They said, those are ours. We're good with those. Nothing else we need. And so they didn't believe in the resurrection. So they come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, okay, we got a question for you. According to the law, if two people get married and, and the husband dies and the wife hasn't provided children, then the brother should marry that woman and provide children so the line doesn't die. Right, Jesus says. Okay, well... What happens if he dies and the next brother comes up and he dies and the next brother comes up and it happens seven times? Whose wife is she in the resurrection, they ask him. And Jesus responds with this. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. I love snarky Jesus when he does that. But <clears throat> for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And I hate to shock you like this, but the eternal state of humanity is not in married couples. It's singles as brothers and sisters forever and ever on the new earth. Right now, everybody raised their hand as marriage is going like, I got lots of questions. Yeah, so do I. But God is honored and said the actual kingdom when we come into the resurrection, is a world filled with single men and women acting as brothers and sisters under the Father in heaven, and we will be able to enjoy and engage in this new heavens and this new earth in that relationship. And so as we begin to dive into this, Jesus elevates singleness to a very interesting location, so much it affected the Apostle Paul, so that when he was talking about how we should live our lives, and he's writing to his startup church in Corinth, which is like the Las Vegas of the ancient world, and he has this great church going on there, and asking questions about marriage, he tells them this. He says, listen, this is what I mean after a long conversation about marriage. He says, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. In other words, the kingdom's ready to break in at any moment. Jesus could come back at any time. From now on, let those who have wives live as, if they, as though they had none. What? In other words, you need a different focus than just the fact that you're married. And you've got a nice home in suburban Corona. And you've got to provide for your food and your kids. No, you need a focus above and beyond. There needs to be a different focus. The same focus, actually, single brothers and sisters, the focus that you should have. Our focus should be the same. And in that, we live the best life, the kind of life that Jesus lays out. But before I can dive into that detailed portion of the life, I need to address one final piece before I think a singles in the room and your brothers and sisters and your friends who are single need to deal with before we can really engage in this new focus. And that is the pain that is caused by the devaluing in our culture. And so I want to encourage those of you who are singles to grieve your loss and marriage to hear and to help. There are real losses. Just as if you would meet somebody who, who is barren and can't have children, you would grieve with them. 
In the same way, we should rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. When it comes to the single life, when it comes to the widowed life or the widower's life, when it comes to starters who are seeing it just not working and wind up being single adults. Guys, there's trauma here, and many of you who are now identified as single adults, whether through divorce, through death, or through long-term rejections and just trying to figure this thing out, there is something to grieve. You have been, there has been pain, and if you don't grieve, you're not going to be able to step forward into what we're talking about. You see, you need to mourn the real loss that you've experienced. And as somebody who is who isn't single, I understand not all of you feel this need to grieve that. So if that's not you, that's cool. But I do know friends and family members who honestly have been ignoring their grief and it's coming out in ways that isn't healthy for them. And they're ignoring their grief because you've been told it's not that big of a deal. You just need to find a date. You just need to do this. We we minimize your pain, which only makes it worse. And what I'm here to tell you is this is an opportunity for you to just let yourself hurt. Back here somewhere, or in that divorce or in that death, there was a, there's been this rejection, there's this pain. And you need to be okay to say, I missed the gate. That hurt. Because it's going to hit again. And it's going to hurt again. Eventually you may fall into resignation and just find yourself going, I don't even want to try anymore. Because everybody just keeps telling me it's in my head. It's my fault. It's my problem. Whatever. No, there's a real loss. And we need to bless you to be able to work through that pain. And to be free to mourn. In fact, realize that it's going to reoccur. It doesn't go away once. I mean, I, guys, my, my mom died nine years ago. And I still have wacky dreams where she shows up in the middle of it. Reading to me stories. I wake up bawling my head off. Anybody who's lost a loved one, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Grief doesn't happen once, you get over it, and then you're good to go. No, grief happens multiple times. And so, my married friends, let's not push them out. Let's be there through the grieving cycle. Let's hold them, allow them to just hurt and talk about their struggle because the grieving cycle is real. It starts first and foremost early on. It'll appear very much as, as a sense of what they call shock. Kind of like, I don't know why I'm here. You'll know divorced friends. They'll be just like, they're in shock. It's sort of like, I don't know how to feel anything. I don't know how to feel anything. It's sometimes denial. This isn't really happening. I'm okay. There's no big deal. And you may be denying the pain or whatever. It will slowly turn into what's called recoil. A recoil is when you suddenly see them go, you know what? I am extremely angry. I'm angry at the church. I'm angry at my, my spouse. I'm angry at my lack of having a spouse. I'm angry at, I know a lady who said she was angry at her, period. Because every time she had it, it was a representation she was never having children because there was no guys out there that were, would find her and be her husband. That's pain. And sometimes it's a recoil in anger. Sometimes it's a recoil in just fear and, and anxieties. We have to be there to walk and pray and care and love and lift. We'll talk about this more as we get into this. But finally, in the end, we have to get through this so we can hit that last stage so that the singles, you can move on to what's truly called rebuilding. It's the end of the grief cycle to come to where you can rebuild and start living life with purpose. What should I rebuild to? Another relationship? No, maybe. I don't know. But I do know there is a relationship and a focus you need to rebuild to. The focus we all need to have, a new focus on something that is greater than us. It's a focus, a refocus on the rule which values 
everyone. It's a focus that Jesus held and Jesus had. And in fact, he talks about it in Matthew chapter 6. He starts talking about life and he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? We go, that's a kind of a weird thing to be stressed out about. Because let's face it, how many clothes do we have in our closet, guys? I mean, my closet, I walk in, I go like, this is ridiculous. It's like another bedroom full of clothing. This is weird. Why do we have so much? And then you go to your, your you, go, you got a pantry, you got a, a refrigerator, you got, you know, you've got all kinds of food everywhere. Why would we be worried about our food or what, you know, in their day, people were starving. You had one garment. If it wore out, you were wondering where you were getting your next one. It was a real legitimate worry in the cycle of life, how you're going to clothe your kids and, and how you're going to deal with your own problems and how you were going to live if you were indeed suddenly divorced or suddenly a widow. These were serious issues, and Jesus is looking at this, and he's saying, all this fixation on earthly life, where your next date's going to come from, where that person's going to be, or uh, was it my problem, or who's going to help me out when I'm suddenly finding myself alone, and how am I going to make that, that bill met, and how am I going to, all this anxiety that is fraught in life. He says, guys, look, life is greater than these things. Your heavenly Father loves you. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. He, he provides for things that are far less valuable than you, like animals and flowers. He will provide for you. And he says, listen, this is what your focus is. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he says, and all these things will be added to you, the, the food and the, the drink stuff. Now, the, now, hear me out real quick. Singles, I'm not saying to you, you know, Seek the kingdom of God, and you'll find that next guy. You'll find that, that girl who you're going to marry. This, this verse has been used to abuse that. I understand. It's not what that I'm saying. I'm saying that this verse is for everyone in the room, that we should have a fixated focus on the kingdom of God. That what we're here on earth for, regardless of whether you're a starter, whether you're an adult single, or whether you find yourself in the widowed or in the widowed age category. Guys, God's not done with you yet. He has a purpose for you called the kingdom of God. His loving fatherly rule over your life and his provision. You don't kick yourself out of God's purpose because you're not in some kind of status. No, all of us fixate on the kingdom of God. And therefore, what I want us to be able to do is actually put into our life something. Yes, there's this social clock that's kicking and this calendar that you're supposed to have. You know what we do in my family when we have a clock that's running constantly? This. You know what that is? That's the reminder. Anybody use reminders out here? It's really annoying is what that is. Stop. All right. There you go. A reminder is something you use on your phone. How many of you are my reminder users? I wasn't looking. Throw it up. My wife uses reminders all the time. And it's a way of addressing in the midst of your crazy running thing, 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 thing life to go, Stop. Do this, and it fixates you and focuses you. So you can go, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing right now. i got to do that. And so I want to ask you to put four reminders I believe are from Jesus' life into your life, things that you should be asking yourself. Well, the social clock wants to ask, do you have your education? You know, have you got yourself a career? Do you have a house? Do you have a car? Do you have, ki- do you have a, a spouse? Do you have kids? Do you have grandkids? Do you have a retirement? Do you have a... That's the social clock asking you questions. I want you to purposely put reminders in that wake you up and remind you about the kingdom of God focus. The first reminder is this, a deep relationship with God. 
You see, Jesus, right at the beginning of his ministry, he climbed into a river next to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist looks at him and says, what are you doing here? Um, I, you should baptize me, not me, you. And Jesus says, baptize me. You know, I'm doing do what my father wants. And as he's baptizing Jesus, Matthew remarks what happens. And he says, behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God breaks through and speaks audibly into the scene. This is my son. You know what the scriptures say? You are his son and daughter if you've received Jesus Christ. And you should live in that identity. You need to live in the fact that you are a son or daughter of Christ. Because Jesus walks as the son of God throughout the rest of the scriptures. He defends it. He lives it. He stands in the authority of it. He would get away and go up on a mountain and spend time with God. He would get away in the early morning and spend time with God. Now, if Jesus needed to spend time with God, and he was God, I wonder how much time I need. And how often I neglect it. And what I want to challenge us is not to ask the question of, Am I, how's my education going? Yes, those are good questions you should be doing. That social clock's always going to be there. People are going to pressure you for it. But what you need to do is stop and say, wait, how am I doing with my relationship with God? Do you have a relationship with God? Do you know God as your father? Or is he some being in the sky that you can talk to once in a great while? Or, or do you know him as your father? Do you have a deep relationship with him? Because it's the foundation, the mooring to our lives. And if you don't have that, you are going to be struggling and searching for your value from somewhere else. But this is the God who values you because he made you in his image. And the closer you are focused and fixated on him, the more that value will fill you up. And you will be able to stand in the midst of a social clock that's trying to devalue you. It's necessary that we have this deep relationship with God. It's necessary then that we put another reminder in that goes off and says, hey, how are you doing with your community? Do you have a close community? See, Jesus gathered around himself 12 disciples, not just guys go, okay, now I'm the boss. I need to keep an aesthetic distance from you because I may have to fire one of you guys. And I know one of you is going to betray me anyway. So, you know, he's, he didn't do that. He brought them close. He leaned on them. He asked them for prayer. They were his friends so much so one of them was called his beloved disciple. He nicknamed them. I mean, this is a group of friends. He had a community, a fraternity for ladies, you'd have a sorority. People who are there to support you, lift you up. Paul understood this. Wherever he went to church plant as a single man, he had a group go with him. Community was essential and necessary. For, for married, you got a sense of community because you're married. But singleness it is essential to you having a strong, robust community of friends who support you. In fact, who may even live with you, and, and you guys care about each other and build yourself up. We're going to do an entire sermon on community and all the fraught problems that we've created about that but, and how we're going to solve that, but we're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. The next reminder is that you need a great calling. What are you waking up for? 
The wrong focus will tell you. If you're waking up and everything's about going to work and running the rat race and hitting the social clock, no, you need to have a greater focus. You need to have a greater care, a greater aim. What are you willing to give your life to? What are you willing to love others with and for? What purpose is that? Because Jesus woke up every day fixated on his calling. As the author of Hebrews tells us, says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he just went over all of these Jewish heroes. He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, implying that there is a race before you. There is a purpose before you. No matter what stage of life you are in, no matter what kind of single you would have to identify yourself as, there is a race before you. And you look to Jesus, the founder, author, pioneer, model, that word's all the same, and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and his seat at the right hand of God, uh, the throne of God. He's aiming his life, and it was for his joy that he's willing to give himself to something. So what? You and I would not be in hell, but we would have eternal life in a spiritual family. And that's the final check mark, guys. How is our spiritual family? How are we as a spiritual family? Are we viewing each other as brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we coming around each other? Because Paul called the church brothers and sisters. And he was a single man. He understood the vitality of the need for us to be family and not strangers coming to church. Jesus actually said this, Who are my brothers and my sisters? He says, Those who do the will of God, they are my brothers and my sisters. My mother. And it's just this, this connectedness, this family unity that's to bind us together in Christ. And the singles need this. They, they need us to move family because we are family. And especially when you're in the widow's and the widower stage, this is vital to the church as the family for one another. And all of these four little things are there to indicate as that social clock is working and running that we would stop and ask ourselves, how am I doing with God? How am I doing with the community? How am I doing with that spiritual family? How am I doing with that calling? Because God has given me something greater than my singleness, something greater than my marriage. He's given me something greater to live for. And I need to focus on that. My single brothers and sisters, you are not pariahs. You are not projects. You are not problems. You are a people made in the image of God. A God who has called you his son or his daughter and it's time to live in that and to run towards what he's got you for. He'll add the rest in. Everything that you need as you're going. And I don't know what that is. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I know we can hope. But God has great plans and a purpose for all of us. Let's live in that together. Amen? Let's pray. As we bow our heads, I want to actually take one second to reference some of you in this room who may be here today. I said that in order to really live this well, you need to have a, a deep relationship with God, and you may need to begin that today. Maybe you've never had the opportunity to, to call God your Father because He's always just been God. The gap between us and God is, is created because of our failures, the way we failed each other and sinned against each other, the way we failed God and sinned against Him. And, and filling up and, and doing right to make those failures right, we just don't have enough time because we just keep breaking it. But God knew that and He loved you and He didn't want you to, to pay for those failures all by yourself. Instead, what He did is He came as Jesus. 
And God bore our sins on the cross. He bore those failures to pay for them for you so you'd be right and could have a relationship with them. God, the Father in heaven, he actually wanted you to have his son Jesus pay for your sins so you could have a relationship with him. And this is what it's about. To have that deep relationship with God begins by you receiving the work he's already given you, which is the payment for your sins through Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And today you can begin that journey. You can begin that relationship where God ceases to be God and becomes your father. You can begin that deep relationship by just receiving his gift. You don't earn his forgiveness. You don't earn his payment. He gives it to you willingly and as a gift through Jesus Christ. But you have to take responsibility for it right now. You have to choose to receive it or to reject it. That's really where you're at right now. You have that opportunity to receive it or reject it. I want to give you that chance. Maybe in this room right now, there's some of you who would like to receive that for the first time. Maybe it's been a long time you're coming back to Christ. Give you that chance just by putting your hand up. You're saying, that's me. I need to receive that gift of forgiveness of my sins. I want to start that relationship with God because I can't do this life without him. Lord God, I just ask that if they're here, would you just help them walk through this prayer with you? That, Father, that you'd help them to just pray for the forgiveness and to receive that. That they would be able to step in and receive what you've given to them through Jesus. Lord, would you just help us all as a church come to the place where we are walking with you, not just in growing deep, but in bringing your message to the world that they may hear that you have valued them rightly, not according to the social charts, not according to these other things, but according to your, to your love and your work in Jesus, you have valued them at the cost of your son. And God, may we go into this world telling our friends, our family, our loved ones, our coworkers, everywhere that we go about you, that that value and that purpose might be found in them. We ask your blessing in this and you'd help us to do that in Jesus' name.